Thank you, Adam. You know, uh, most every leader, local, national, global, be it a politician, a man of authority, a CEO, a king, whoever they are, they're almost always maligned. They're lied about. They're slandered. Their character is assassinated. And the thing is, is that that character assassination, that malignment, that slander will last a generation, maybe two, maybe three. After the second or third generation, no one knows, no one really cares. And if it's a significant uh, injustice, it will become a footnote in history. Because other people come and it, we move on with life. We move on. There's one leader, however, that has been maligned from the beginning, and it never goes away. It can be argued, it increases. And that, of course, is God. From the very beginning in the garden, the first statement from the devil is, he's a liar. God's not going to kill you. You will not die. He has maligned the character of God from the very beginning and continues, and you and I both know lots of people in our world where the Lord's character is called into question constantly. And ironically, even those people who may be what I would call semi-atheist, they're not sure they believe in a God, and they are sometimes buoyed by all the injustice in the world with that worn-out charge, well, if he was a loving God, he wouldn't let this happen, or he wouldn't let that happen. We've all heard it. That's one of the most saddest ironies in the world, that we'll ignore God, reject God, until we need God. Something happens in our life, and then we make an appeal to God, and when things don't go the way we want it to go, we now slander God. His justice, he's not fair. And we've all heard it, maybe we've even felt it at times. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Lord willing, I hope that we can bring something together that will help us maybe in our understanding and our dealing with the concept and idea of the justice of God. I, I so appreciate the invitation to be here with you today. Uh, we've been here in the South for a while, and uh, actually we came here last week to see my old friend Barry. I've known Barry since we were both about 20. Uh, he first started preaching, and he invited me to one of my first sermons when I didn't even know who he was way, way, way back there in Southern California before everything got crazy. And uh, it's been a pleasure to be here with him. I had lunch with him last week and catch up, etc. But uh, the elders have invited me to speak here, and I'm most appreciative of that. Danny mentioned this morning we've been friends for over 50 years, uh, classmates, and uh, a lot of old friends here, Danny and Kathy, Belinda, of course, and uh, one of my really old, old, old friends, Kay. I don't know if she's here this morning or not. <laughs> uh, Chip Porter's grandfather was my first Sunday school Bible class teacher in high school. More than that, he was my mother's high school Sunday school teacher, and she's here with me just sad her 94th birthday. So uh, Chip comes from a long line of good, strong genes. <laughs> good to see Chip and Christy and his family. And uh, good to be with you. Several of you I've, I've known before and, and met you in time with you. And uh, I love the South. I love this area. And uh, uh, it's just a personal privilege for my wife and I to be here with you 
this morning. Uh, theologians think they're so smart. And the thing about the justice of God is that we fall victim to their decision about how just God is. Now, I'm going to throw something out here for you, and it's really not that important. I'm going to show you what this is going to be about here. Uh, the justice of God, we have always used that symbol of scales, and that is the appropriate symbol. However, long ago, theologians in the 1800s, early 1800s, began to talk about the punitive justice of God. And that was quite the norm. Everyone thought the justice of God comes down like a hammer and everyone is going to be answering for the consequences of their own sin. And then in the early 20th century, it, it began to, to shift a little bit. And it was, no, it's restorative justice. It's not punitive justice. Because it seems as if the extreme on one side for several generations was going to give way to another extreme on the other side. That we don't want to emphasize the punishment of God. We want to emphasize the restorative nature, character of God. And I wouldn't argue with either one, but the problem is, is that when men consider justice, it's not scales. Actually, the better picture is a pendulum. And we see that even today, how justice turns other things that at times past had been true, had been right, had been fair, turns it on its head. And now justice is what other people want to serve their political views, their political ideas, and it swings back and forth and back and forth. And we are right now in a very violent swing back away from that which is consequential for people's sins because now sin is being explained away as really not that relevant. Maybe we're wrong, but maybe we're not. You're right in your world, I'm right in my world. What was becoming quite prominent 30 years ago, what heard the phrase, the New Age movement, and all the stuff that goes with that, it basically said, I'm the God of my universe, you're the God of your universe, I'll judge my universe my way, you judge your universe your way, and we'll both be right. And that was the norm, and it just became more, and what we're seeing now is the uh, evidence of that thinking. What I want us to do, first of all, is recognize that if we keep going to the bookstores, if we keep going to the professors, if we keep going to all of the earthly sources of, quote, their wisdom, we're just going to be thrown back and forth. Kind of like what Paul said in Ephesians 4, children tossed to and fro. Yeah, that we're, there's where we are. We're being whipsawed back and forth. Let's go to the Bible. This is solid. This doesn't change. This has been true, will be true, yesterday, today, and forever. Exodus chapter 34. The uh, passage where Moses, when he was told to lead the people out of Egypt, it's an interesting section where Moses says, you know, I, I, I'll do it, but first of all, tell me who you are. I want to know who you are, and tell me about you and your justice. Look at uh, verse 5 of Exodus 34. 
the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. This is a great lesson just by itself. I'm sure many of you may have heard something like this. The name of the Lord, God said, quote, the Lord, the Lord God, a God merciful. That's the first word that he uses in describing his nature. That's important because the world sees God as a vindictive, vicious, angry God. The first word he says is, I am going to be merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now here's where we get our first point in verse 7 this morning. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation, simply meaning that we can sin, our children will not be held guilty, but they will suffer the consequence of our sin to the third and the fourth generation. And we can all see and know and may even be a part of an example just like this, where we're not guilty, but we're paying the price for somebody else's sin in our family. Now, the point I want us to see here is that as the Lord describes himself, this is where the scales come in. There is a balance. He will forgive the iniquity, but we're going to find out in a moment. He'll forgive those who will confess their sins. 1 John 1, 9, he will forgive those if we confess our sins. But those who will not, he will not clear the guilty. Now, that tells me, first of all, that the justice of God is going to be equitable. It's going to be fair. It's going to be even-handed. And God is telling us this is how he is going to be. But there's another passage in the New Testament that I think is even more uh, descriptive and more informative about this. Now, setting the stage, for whatever reason that is incomprehensible to us, God decided to make man. And when he created man, he presented to man the law. God, I am convinced, did not write this law or speak this law before, uh, right after man was created. But this is the law that has been eternal. Right has always been right. Long before the Garden of Eden, wrong has always been wrong. Long before the Garden of Eden. It didn't just now all of a sudden happen. This is the way eternal, universal law of right and wrong has always been, and there's never been any difference to it. Well, the problem, of course, as we all know, is that man didn't keep this law. He broke it. And when he broke that law, I want you to see by that picture I've got up here, he also broke his relationship with God. And just as Adam was describing a few moments ago for our Lord's Supper uh, service, man can't do a thing. You look at that, man has cut himself off from anything and everything that would ever help him, that would be able to take care of, to wash away, cleanse him from his sins. He's incapable of doing it because he's broken his relationship with God, and God is the only one in this picture that can do anything. So we know the story. What he did was he gave his son. And when his son came, Jesus came to reconcile us 
back to God and back to law. And that is our reading this morning in Romans chapter 3. And if you'll turn with me to the third chapter of Romans, we want to read uh, this again with the comments that we've just made in light of that, how God will take care of this problem, this universal, basic, fundamental problem for all men, for all time, through His Son. Beginning in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested. Now I want you to note that this is going to be used, that term is going to be found three times in this text. And the point is God is wanting people to see His righteousness. Those who would malign God's character as being unfair, unrighteous, unjust. Here he says, this is how I can show the world that I am just, I am righteous, I am fair. And it reads, verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. Believers, it doesn't matter who they are and where they came from. You believe in Christ, that's all that is needed here in this scenario that, uh, that we're reading from. He said, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's why the cross is right here in the middle. This is, uh, someone said the other night, the fulcrum of the Bible. That's right. That's where everything is balanced, right here on the cross. Take the cross out, everything falls apart. There's nothing in the Bible that can help us because it all points to the Christ. And it says, verse 25, whom God put forward. Then he's setting it out here for the world as a propitiation. That's an old word that sometimes can confuse people. It simply means a covering. This propitiation is going to cover, as in the Old Testament, it covered the ark. When the priest poured out the blood, it covered the top. Jesus comes to be the cover, to cover our sins so that they are hidden, they are gone. They are not in sight. They are done away with. Verse 25, again, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to, second time, show His righteousness at the present time and here is where we want to go. As Jesus satisfies man, satisfies law, and satisfies the Father. He satisfies man because He's paid the price for us. He satisfies law because law requires the death of the sinner. So Jesus comes and satisfies both. But He satisfies the Father in a unique way that Paul describes here. He has done this so that He might be just, that is, God is going to keep His relationship with law as just He's not going to break a law. He's not going to circumvent a law. He is going to satisfy law. And when he satisfies law, he will be the one who can justify man. Man can't justify himself. And the law cannot justify man because man has broken the law. Someone has to come in and declare man as being just and righteous. And the only one that can do that is the Father. And here he comes, as Paul describes, that he might be the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, verse 26. This is the justice of God right here. 
This is what we need to understand and know. Now, uh, let me see which button we push here again here on this. As we noted in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How is he able to do that? It is because of that red cross that we put right in the middle of that picture. And as John explains two verses earlier in our text, in verse 7, if we walk in the light, we are going to be cleansed by the blood of Jesus, his son. That's the means by which you and I stand right before God through his blood. That is the righteousness of God. Now, this is all, so far, everything we've discussed can be theological, left to that. It's interesting, sometimes very uh, rewarding for people to describe, discuss, and consider these theological ramifications of right and wrong, law, death, etc. But let's, let's pull this into a more practical time and a more practical application. There is an issue in our world today that is demanding attention from almost everyone, and that will be the issue of homosexuality. This is not going to be a sermon on that, but it's going to be a passage and a statement from the Bible that will help us to understand the justice of God in regard to that. We've read in Exodus 34, God reveals his name, his character. We have also seen that he reveals his justice. And now we've seen he reveals his righteousness. So if he's just, if he's right, if his character is one that he is merciful and gracious, forgiving iniquity but not clearing the guilty, well, how is this going to come down to the reality of life? I want you to turn to Genesis 18. This is one of uh, the most... Uh, Curious, it, it is, has intrigued me since the first day I ever read it. In Genesis 18, there is a discussion that God has with himself about Abraham. Genesis 18, verse 17, starting. Genesis 18, 17, we read, the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Who's God talking to? He's talking to himself. Not in some kind of way that he, he, he's not focused. Quite the contrary. This is the Father. This is the Spirit. This is the Son having this communal conversation about what God is doing. This is the same thing in the beginning when God said, let us make man in our image. Same thing. And now God is discussing Abraham. And what he says about Abraham is that, shall I hide this thing from what I'm about to do? And what he's going to do is he's going to destroy Sodom. Sodom and Gomorrah are going to go down. And God has already determined that. He said, shall I hide this from Abraham? Because I know he's going to be a great and mighty nation, and he will bless the nation through his children. So what are we going to do? Verse 20, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave. I'm going to go down there and see what this cry is about. It's come to me, and if not, I'll know. Verse 22. 
The men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Uh, to his credit, Abraham is a man who is, um, he has reverence for the Lord, but he's not going to run away from the Lord. He's going to stand there and he is going to bargain for his family with the Lord, which is a most intriguing thought. Who I don't know anyone to have the courage to be able to do that face to face with God. But he will do that. In verse 23, Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? That is a great statement. Because now as God is going to have this conversation with Abraham, Abraham says, are you going to do this? Are you going to sweep away the righteous with the wicked? As he discovers that God's plan is to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, what are you going to do about the good people that are still there? And in verse 24, suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from to do such a thing as this. And as he says at the end of verse 12, I mean verse 25, pardon me, far be that from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just. Now we know the story, 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. Couldn't find 10 righteous people. Abraham with his, uh, with his uh, nephew Lot, Lot and his wife, his three daughters, their sons, their, their, uh, their husband, they're going to have to leave. And they don't all make it. And we know the sad uh, epilogue on that story. But what I want us to see is God is willing. God is willing to save if people will be righteous. If people are going to be obedient. If people are going to be faithful. If they will reject the sin that is in their life. And they will accept the righteous truth from the word of God. God says, I will forgive their iniquity. Exodus 34 but by no means will I clear the guilty. I'll forgive their iniquities, but I will not clear the guilty. If they're going to persist and continue in this. And what that means for you and for me in our world today is that those people, whatever they are doing, whatever they are in, if they will confess their sins, God has told us that he is faithful and just to forgive their sins. But the problem is this. Today we're living in an age, and this is nothing new. I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. We are being told that the sin that in days past that was rejected now has to be accepted as normal, as right. And that if we draw a line in the sand between sin and and righteousness, we are intolerant, which is the most evil accusation that can be made to people today. And we are now having to accept that. And this is, this is where we are moving. And we all know that. What I want to look at is not what we should do, but what God said he will do. If people will admit and confess their sin, there's the key. God will take care of it. He will forgive them and he will cleanse them. But if we don't, what's God going to do? What will the Lord do? Now that's going to be a struggle for every one of us. Maybe it's a friend that has gone off into this deviant behavior. Maybe it's a child 
Maybe it's a family member, somebody. And we're going to have to deal with that, and it's hard. And the pressure to accept it becomes more and more and more. And if you'll go back and reread the 19th chapter of Genesis and see the pressure that Lot was under and his family were under, it's no different than today. Everyone is under pressure to accept sin. And what the scriptures are telling us is that if we will confess, not accept sin, then God is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us. But if we accept that sin, back on the scale, he will not clear the guilty. So there's the justice of God. He will forgive the iniquity, but by no means clear the guilty. And that's where it lies. And it's not the easiest thing to do, brother and sister and friend. But the justice of God is where we finally end up with all of this. I had a very dear friend uh, many, many years ago. He served as an elder for many years. Godly man, graceful, everything you would want. He told me a story uh, when I first met him, that his firstborn granddaughter was raised outside of the church in a pagan world filled with all manner of sinful behavior. And he got word that his granddaughter had died in a drunken overdose of narcotics, and they found her body. And they were going to bury her, and they wanted him to do the funeral. Now, can you imagine to do the funeral of your firstborn grandchild, knowing the circumstance in which they had died? And now all of your family, all of your friends, they're all gathering, and they're waiting to hear what you have to say. What would you say in something like that? That's how I felt. I said, what did you say? I can't imagine. And he said, before the funeral, he was off the side. He said, I cried and cried, and I prayed, and I cried, and I prayed, and I cried, and I prayed again. He said, then when it was time to step out in front of all these people who were wanting to hear what I have to say about my granddaughter, he said, all I could say with a clear conscience, knowing that this was true, was this. I don't know what the Lord is going to decide about my granddaughter. I don't know what the Lord should decide or do about my granddaughter. But I know this, whatever the Lord decides to do, he will do the right thing. God doesn't make mistakes. We may second guess God's judgment. We may second guess God's law. But we're all just men, like the pendulum that's just swinging back and forth, thinking that we've got the right idea. And then in the next generation, it just turns it on its head and it's something different. What he says is, God will do the right thing. And that's true for you and for me, and for everyone that we know and everyone that will ever stand before God. Because the Bible tells us that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. That's what man is going to do, whether he will do it now or not. 
Every man will bow and will confess before God after this world is long gone. Then it's determined, what will God do? I don't know. But I know this. He'll do the right thing. Now, if you're not right with God, and if you have an idea of how God would deal with you, it's based upon how you're feeling, what you're doing, how you're living. If you're living with the Lord, that's wonderful. For many of God's children, when they reach advanced age, they're welcoming the day that they can leave this world and be with their father. But if you're not at that point yet where you still have many things to do, you have responsibilities. You have children. You have families. You have a husband, a wife. You have people that you have to work with and serve. Are you serving yourself? Are you serving the Lord? Are you walking with him? Or are you walking with the world? As the world leads us away and says, oh, never mind that. That's okay. This is okay. This is our, this is our, this, this is not a big deal. Matter of fact, love is the only thing that we need to worry about here. And if we have been so deceived by the devil who himself is leading us all around in this world, then we need to get right with the Lord. And I know there are people here who will help you with that. But this is the time to be right with God because he'll do the right thing. Let's make sure that we live in such a way that he will rightfully and righteously save us and bring us to his home. If you're in need, I invite you to come while we stand and sing.